Welcome to Native America Calling. I'm Sean Spruce. As the tax deadline approaches, taxpayers are busy crunching numbers to get their paperwork in, or they're putting it off until the last minute. Regardless of how diligent you are, experts warn there could be a number of delays as the IRS deals with the effects of the pandemic and a staff shortage. And as always, some Native Americans have unique tax filing details to consider. We'll get the lay of the land for this year's tax filing season and take your calls right after the news. This is National Native News. I'm Antonia Gonzalez. The National Congress of American Indians is hosting a Violence Against Women Act Tribal Leader Town Hall Wednesday. It follows last week's approval of the Violence Against Women Act reauthorization by Congress included in a bipartisan appropriations deal. VAWA provisions help strengthen safety in Native communities, including a pilot program to allow some Alaska Native villages to exercise tribal jurisdiction over non-Indian offenders. Akiak Chief Mike Williams Sr. says it's good for Alaska and all of Indian country. We've been working so hard uh, over the long years, especially here in Alaska, when uh, we are dealing with uh, 229 federally recognized tribes and to empower each of the community is the goal to uh, deal with these issues that uh, are not good for our women and children, our elders in Alaska. Tribal leaders will review provisions in the law and discuss next steps for tribal nations. The federal government will fund relocation efforts for six Alaska communities threatened by erosion and flooding. Most are in the YK Delta, where erosion and flooding are pervasive problems. KYUK's Olivia Eberts reports the project will play out over time and other threatened communities can still apply for funding. The U.S. Department of Agriculture announced in early March that it will pay for Alaska communities to relocate buildings and infrastructure. The communities whose projects have already been funded include Kotlik, Aluganok, Quigilingok, Gullivan, Tuntutuliak, and Tununik. What do they all have in common? They're threatened by erosion and flooding. We are very excited. That's Brett Nelson. He's a conservation engineer for USDA. His team has worked to provide flood and erosion mitigation around rural Alaska for years. He knows the communities and their needs. Nelson says this type of federal funding is a big deal. That's because it's a first. Usually, the federal government only funds his department to relocate buildings when there's an emergency, like when a home or building is about to fall into a river. But this funding will be preventative, so communities can begin their relocation efforts before it's too late. Definitely, this is a new thing for up here. Nelson says the entire process will take about five years. It involves multiple stages of planning before they can move into the actual construction and relocation part. But he says if any one building in those communities becomes urgently threatened, they can speed up the process for those structures. The application is still open for Alaska villages. Any village with an erosion, flooding, or permafrost issue is eligible to receive funding. In Juneau, I'm Olivia Eberts. This week, outside Chiloquin, Oregon, 20 trainees will learn the traditional role of fire in managing the landscape. KLCC's Brian Bull reports. 
The week-long training mirrors a similar program held outside Eugene last fall. Multiple agencies and Native American tribes from across Oregon are helping stage the burn, which will be on two acres of private land. Derek Kimball is a Klamath tribal member who participated in last year's training and is helping coordinate this week's program. Our goals are to provide forest resiliency and to diminish wildfires so the forest is healthy and it won't catch into a big mega fire. Before colonization, indigenous people did controlled burns to rejuvenate habitat and reduce fuel buildup. Kimball says he's heartened that after a century of fire suppression, non-tribal governments are becoming more open to what many native people call cultural burns, patterned after the practices of their ancestors. For National Native News, I'm Brian Bull. And I'm Antonia Gonzalez. National Native News is produced by Kiwanak Broadcast Corporation with funding by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. There are now booster recommendations for all three available COVID-19 vaccines in the United States, and you may choose which booster shot you receive. More info at aaip.org or cdc.gov coronavirus who support this show. Support by the Center for Indigenous Cancer Research at Roswell Park Comprehensive Cancer Center, dedicated to cancer research, medicine, and cancer care for indigenous populations. A no-charge online risk assessment tool is available at roswellpark.org slash assessme. Native Voice One, the Native American Radio Network. Welcome to Native America Calling, I'm Sean Spruce. If you're like most people, you have to gear yourself up to fill out and submit your tax forms every year. Even if you have a refund coming, it usually takes a surge of willpower to get those documents into the IRS. To make matters worse, you may be one of the millions of taxpayers who are still waiting for your refund from last year because of a massive backlog at the IRS. And if you have questions, good luck getting answers. Last year, only one in 10 phone calls got through to an actual employee for an answer. The agency announced it will hire 5,000 new workers in the next month to help manage the crisis. That will help them replenish their workforce after a decade of budget cuts. Today, we'll give you an idea of what you can expect this tax season. We have some experts who can guide you through the process and help you avoid scams. What is your frustration with tax season? Have you completed your filing for this year already? Give us a call, join the discussion, 1-800-996-2848. That's 1-800-99-NATIVE. Henry Thompson is the site coordinator for the Volunteer Income Tax Assistance Program at Chief Dullknife College. She's speaking to us today from the Northern Cheyenne Indian Reservation in Lame Deer, Montana, and she is Cheyenne. Henry, welcome back to Native America Calling. Thank you. Tyler Emerson is joining us today from Juneau, Alaska, where he is a senior accountant CPA with LG Rayfeld. Welcome to Native America Calling, Tyler. Thank you for having me. And joining us today from Los Angeles, California, is Sean Guthrie. He's the VITA lead coordinator for the Tlingit Haida Regional Housing Authority. He's Tlingit and Shumshan. Welcome to Native America Calling, Sean. Hey, thanks, John, for having me on the line. 
You bet. And I understand you are racing to catch a flight there at uh, Los Angeles uh, International Airport after a little weekend getaway in L.A. So we sure do appreciate you coming on the show today. Uh, no problem, man. I'm, I'm glad to be here. You and yes, bet. if I uh, get disconnected, I apologize because we're headed through security here in a few minutes. No worries. No worries. I know our producers are going to keep you posted and uh, we'll do our best to get you on the air with a good, clean connection. Henry, I, I want to start off with you today. I keep hearing these horror stories about really long delays with tax refunds. And I mean, geez, some folks still waiting on refunds from their 2020 tax return. Apparently, it also takes an act of Congress to talk with an actual person at IRS if you have questions or problems. So I, I want to know, Henry, is it true that filing taxes this year is more challenging than in years past? There, yes and no. You know, if you're filing the same way that you have every year, you know, you have dependents or you're single, those are pieces of cake. They're not hard at all. But as you know, like in Indian country, we have multiple family members living together in the same family unit. So sometimes dependency changes in the same way with children from uh, different parents claim them. They alternate years. So when they do things like that, that slows it down. Now, and then you throw COVID into the whole mess of all of this, and it's just, it's just up for grabs. I mean, you just don't know when you're going to get your refund. I usually, we've been doing taxes here at Chief Online College for 16 years. And we have a steady clients, the same ones that come back every year, but we also have new ones every year too. So when I do taxes for someone that has been with us for a while, hey, let me know when you get your refund. Not because I want to know when you get your money. I want to know how long it's taking to get your refund. And I've reached out to a few of our clients, and the quickest one got back. There's back was two weeks. She did get the additional child tax credit, and so she was able to get hers back. She filed in the beginning of February, and by February 15th, she had hers back. She didn't get the earned income credit. And what I'm hearing back from those folks that got both of those credits is taking about six weeks to get their refund, at least at our site. Now, Henry, you mentioned uh, this one person got her refund uh, after two weeks. So is that a longer period of time than in years past usually? How long does it usually take for, for your taxpayers to get their refunds? It used to take seven to ten days. Okay, so definitely a longer time for sure. So I hear this ad these advanced child tax credits these payments that a lot of Native folks got last year to help get us through that tumultuous period there during the early days of the pandemic. Is that where a lot of these problems are occurring with these backlogs and such? No, I think the problem lies with there's nobody in their offices yet at the IRS. <laughs> that may, I mean, one of the other uh, gentlemen on the panel can talk about it too, but it's, I think it might affect somehow, but, you know, they did tell us in our training that if they didn't bring those letters in that they received from the IRS for the advanced child tax credit and the economic impact uh, money, the so 1400 that everybody got the last payment, that if they don't bring those letters in and they give us an inaccurate amount, that it could delay their refund to at least a year because... If the numbers don't match up, they go into a pile that somebody in person has to look at. And that's where the delay comes from. With okay. Those. Got it. 
So what are some of the, the, the big questions and tax concerns that, that you're dealing with right now with folks there at Northern Cheyenne? Well, I think there's a lot of the, because we've got three payments of stimulus monies, our recovery rebate payments. People, you know, the miscommunication is out there that when they filed their taxes this year, they're going to get an additional $1,400. Well, some of them may because those are the ones that didn't receive their last payment. Or maybe they only got for themselves and their children didn't get it. So the IRS wants to make sure that those people that didn't get theirs got that money, but it's not for everybody to get an additional $1,400. Okay. So stimulus payments, I mean, some folks got those last year and even the year before that as well. So are there any other specific things that people should know about reporting those stimulus payments if they receive them? Just that they need to report them and they need to bring... um, they need to bring those letters in that they received from the IRS. The letters okay. are 6419 for the Advanced Child Tax Credit, and the economic impact is 6475. Okay. All right. Good information. Uh, Henry, IRS audits, I think for, for many people, this is like the worst nightmare ever. And, and how common are audits among the Native population that you serve? I think when we first started taxes, there was a lot of uh, audits because of being in a rural area and the dynamics in tribal communities where not everybody can go down to the post office and get a post office box number because there's only so many to have. Nobody gets any mail, at least on our reservation, by rural delivery. So that in itself creates a red flag for the IRS when you have multiple families. And then at one point they even told us that you could only have one head of household in a family unit. Well, that has since changed, but I think those are some of the issues, not as bad as we used to have them, but we are still seeing those issues come up. Or grandparents, our grandparents take care of their grandchildren it's not important for them to see see that their name is on certain paperwork. Um, and so oftentimes we've seen grandparents claim children, grandchildren that we know live with them and have meet all the criteria for them to claim them. But when chosen for audit, they don't have proof that they lived in that household. They can go mm-hmm. to Indian Health Service and look to see uh, what the medical records say, but oftentimes it just has the parent's name and school records. So when they come in, we really try to do a bit of educating along with taxes to let them know that, you know, you're claiming your grandparents, yeah, yes, I know that you do raise those children, but please make sure that your name and your physical address, we have physical addresses now, we did 16 years ago, I think just since um, Homeland Security is when we started getting physical addresses. We still don't get mail delivered. We just get the physical address. We just need to make sure that your physical address matches their records. So I think that has, we don't see so many of those anymore because they're following up on those. Now, Henry, you mentioned uh, in some native homes that they, there's actually a situation where there could be two head of households. And that, that sounds really interesting because I always assumed that 
there would only be one head of household in a specific home. So can you give an example of a situation in a native family where you might have two heads of household living at the same residence? Housing, there's no housing. So family units, and especially with COVID came in, I had a friend that was just her and her granddaughter. And because of somebody not, family members not able to make the electricity bill or pay the rent, she had 10 to 12 people living in her home during the majority of COVID. Well, now she's down to only four of them, four additional, but those are reasons why, you know, and they, they do, some of them do work. They do take care of the needs within the family. They do keep, they even go as far as keeping, because they have to in reporting, if someone were to come look at their, if they buy, have food stamps and they keep their own food in separate cupboards. The, sure. the main okay. reason is there's no housing or they lost housing because they couldn't afford to pay their bills. Okay, limited housing. Thank you, Henry. Well, folks, we're talking about income taxes today and it might not be your favorite topic, but it is certainly an important one. Native Americans became subject to federal income tax in 1924. That was the year we were granted U.S. citizenship. However, not all income a Native person receives is taxable under federal law. For example, income generated by land held in trust is not taxable. So rights of way, leases for oil and natural gas drilling, timber and logging, these can all be examples of trust land income. You're listening today to Native America Calling. I'm your host, Sean Spruce. We will be back right after this short break. Many tribes are showing solidarity with Ukraine during the invasion of Russian troops and a traditional headscarf worn carries a visual connection between Native Americans and the people of Ukraine. It's become a symbol of support on social media. We'll explore the Ukrainian crisis from a Native perspective on the next Native America Calling. team. Contact Lua Indian Healthcare Provider. Center for Medicare and Medicaid Service. Thanks for tuning in to Native America Calling. I'm Sean Spruce. Refunds might be a welcome influx of cash into your bank account, but there's nothing fun about figuring out tax forms every year. We're still a month away from the filing deadline. So what's on your mind about taxes? We invite you to be a part of today's discussion. The number to call 1-800-996-2848. That's also 1-800-99-NATIVE. I'd like to bring Sean Guthrie into our conversation now. Again, he is a VITA Volunteer Income Tax Assistance Lead Coordinator for the Tlingit Haida Regional Housing Authority. And Sean, earlier we were listening to Henry Thompson there at Chief Dullknife College, and she uh, explained to us about some of these delays with refunds, longer than normal delays with folks um, receiving their their tax refunds. Are, are you experiencing similar things up there in Juneau? 
Okay. Probably think... gone a lot smoother than in previous years. But oh, good. Okay. As far as 2020 and 2019, yes, we we had delays. The people were probably waiting about two or three weeks longer than they normally would. Now, Sean, what do you recommend if a tax filer, if they are experiencing one of these lengthy delays, two, three weeks out, what, what, what should they do to, um, to try and expedite that? Uh, for us, it's just making sure that they have all their paperwork, kind of like what uh, Henry was talking about. Um, a lot of the delays are due to just us or somebody or the the taxpayer reporting incorrect uh, advanced child tax credit um, or stimulus payments. So we found out if the number's off that it delays and it does require a personal audit for the taxpayer. So I just my recommendation is just making sure you have all the forms, all the correct forms. Before you no, bring sure. it into your, uh, before you bring it agency. in, sure. Okay, got it. And Sean, about for the average, a typical taxpayer, about how long should it take for somebody to get all that documentation together? You know, W twos or ten ninety nines if you're a gig worker. Any other, um, you know, deductible expenses, all that paperwork. About how long should it take to get that stuff all ready so you're able to go into the office and, and get an accurate return filed? Well, it really depends. I mean, legally, they're supposed to get you your tax documents before January thirty first. But I mean, if I was a taxpayer, I would probably wait until. Uh, at least the 15th of February. I mean, I would wait a couple of weeks to get all your forms. What do you, Sorry, what I'm, can people... I'm about to go through the security scanner right now, so I have to no give worries. up my phone for a couple of minutes. <laughs> no worries, Sean. Yeah, do what you got to do. Again, thank you for, for joining us. I'd like to go back to, to Henry... And Henry, talking again about these lengthy delays, um, are, are there any other resources that people can turn to or even some people at the IRS that you can, apparently it's hard to get a hold of them, but there are, are there any people that can assist with somebody who might have a, a, a lengthy delay with a refund? You can always go into or make an appointment because there is a IRS tax office in Billings, which is, you know, 100 miles, 110 miles from Lame Deer. You can go in, call and make an appointment, and go in and sit with, visit with them. There's also a taxpayer advocate in every state. I think the IRS puts out uh, contracts with folks that would like to run a taxpayer advocate um, support group or helping them, and they, uh, they are excellent people. They can see things that I can't see. But they typically don't want you to contact them until you've been, you know, three to six months waiting for your refund. So really extended delay. And then how, how do people actually find these, these tax help advocates? Are they online? Yeah, you can Google it. Uh, it's online. I think you can also find them through the irs.gov. We always have our number for the Helena office here and they're just you know they're really good we had a lot of them in 2020 that for some reason 
the um, the information was their payroll information was not did not get in to the IRS on time, and so it sat it sat separately, and there are still people waiting for their 2020 returns because it didn't get processed before the IRS shut down because it was mailed in late. So. And the taxpayer advocates have been working with those folks, and they really, really are good people, and they return phone calls. They're pleasant. At least my experience with them are they're pleasant, and they will help help the people. So they, I like them, so they're great in my eyes. But there may be some cases, I don't know, that they weren't as helpful. Now, Henry, I know a lot of folks file their their returns electronically. And I know there at VITA, you do all of the, for the most part, all the refunds or the, the tax returns are filed electronically, but some folks still do file paper returns. For people that do file paper returns, is there a more likely chance of a delay than if they file electronically? Yes, because it, I mean, it has to go, go in. We can even do the paper returns if they want to file paper, as long as they meet the guidelines of our program. And so we just give them the forms and they, they mail them off, but yeah, it takes it can take six months sometimes. Or I don't. It just depends, I guess. But it it is lengthy. It is a lot more. Are there any situations where you recommend that a person file uh, with paper forms as opposed to electronically? Yes, if they somebody else has claimed one of their dependents, their children, and it comes back rejected electronically then we encourage them, as long as they have the proof, to file paper. And when that happens, the person that claimed the child will get a letter from the IRS, as will be the parent or grandparent or whoever met the criteria to actually claim the child. And then it's it's a longer, it could take a long time, could take a year. But to me, it's worth it so that that, number one, that stops that somebody else is not claiming a child that they are not supposed to be claiming, and um, they're getting their full refund as opposed to just partial. Okay. Good information. Let's bring Tyler Emerson into our show now. He's our other guest, and he's an accountant. Uh, he's based up there in Juneau. Tyler, uh, what are what's some feedback that you're getting from people filing tax returns? Uh, anything different uh, that you're seeing this year? Uh, not not particularly. Kind of echoing what other folks have said about kind of we're, we're just seeing small problems with the mismatching with the child tax credit and the stimulus payment and sometimes that'll that'll cause some confusion a lot of times maybe maybe they forgot they received their stimulus payment and will mark on the return that they did not receive it and then later in the mail they we we told them they were getting a refund and then they'll get an adjustment notice saying hey you're not getting this big refund anymore but it's because they had already received the stimulus payment and they had kind of forgot about it or otherwise didn't bring us the letter so we're just kind of seeing some kind of back and forth confusion between what's being filed on the on the return and what the IRS has in the computer and what the taxpayer their records might reflect or what they they may or may not remember Tyler throughout the and obviously you know we start getting these 
wage statements and other earning statements after the first of the year, but what about just ongoing throughout the year? Are there some things that we can do as just regular taxpayers to just keep good records uh, so that once that the first of the year hits and we start thinking about tax filing, that we're, we're in a better position to get everything squared away and get a good, timely, accurate return filed? Uh, yeah, I mean, generally, I think it's just a good idea to have a, you know, a good file just socked away somewhere with all your kind of relevant, maybe receipts that you're kind of incurring costs that may may or may not be relevant, but maybe you know your property tax or your mortgage interest, kind of your bank statements, so on and so forth. Especially if you're self-employed, then it becomes a whole you have a whole another kind of compliance headache and coming up with all your deductible expenses for your business or your rental property. So in that case, we kind of usually recommend that folks are maintaining some sort of at least a spreadsheet or, you know, if you go even further, double entry bookkeeping software like QuickBooks or something like that to kind of keep a an accurate income statement going. So you're not just having to add up a pile of receipts, you know, right this time of year, which Often people do, and that's fine too. But we find that the folks that kind of keep keep it going throughout the year have an easier time right now. Do you have folks sometimes that come in during tax season and just have just maybe like just a a a folder or even just a bag full of receipts, and then they ask you to kind of sort it all out for them? Is that part of what you do as as a CPA? Uh, it, we. <laughs> We kind of joke about it in the office, but yes, there there are some folks that come in. We have a couple that come in with a big giant Tupperware tub with all sorts of miscellaneous mail, and you, there's probably three a W two and two 1099s you're looking for in a giant stack of mail. The rest is irrelevant. But sometimes people just they don't want to have any any association with what the what they have to do there that they just we open all their mail and do everything for them and if they want to pay for that that's fine <laughs> but it's not exactly a pleasant task <laughs> yeah i can imagine uh any any special considerations for folks up in alaska i know there's the alaska permanent fund dividend or maybe even you know some payments from regional corporations what do folks in alaska native folks up in alaska have to pay attention to during tax season uh, yeah, I mean, we, we have a little different, it sounds like. I'm not totally familiar with your system down south, but most everybody's covered by a, a native corporation or, or multiple up here, and they'll be receiving some sort of 1099 dividend statement uh, that kind of reports the payments that were made to them on their behalf. So that's kind of the most important thing is just making sure you get those entered into the return, making sure you get your permanent fund dividend entered into the return. Like like a lot of the guests before, it's the most important thing is just matching matching your return with what the IRS has in their computer and that's gonna give you the best chance of getting a quick quick refund. Alaska permanent fund dividends, those are taxable income, right? Indeed, yep, they are. Tyler, cryptocurrency I meet a lot of native people who've jumped on this whole digital currency bandwagon, bought some Bitcoin or some other type of crypto. What do they need to know about reporting those transactions to the IRS? Well, they need to know it's 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 it can be relatively complex. 
Uh, a lot of people have jumped into it without kind of realizing that there is a tax reporting requirement for each crypto transaction, a buy or sell, that is a taxable transaction. Even if you're purchasing a coffee with a Bitcoin, that's a, that's a taxable transaction that should be reported on the return. So most of the times what we find is people have uh, utilized one of these more common I don't know if you would call them a brokerage or an exchange, uh, you know, Coinbase or some of these larger publicly traded companies that have an exchange, which, which thankfully they have a good reporting structure. You can go in, you can download your entire kind of transaction history. Uh, and then there's some other services you can Google around that basically you can upload your transaction history and it will generate a Schedule D and an 8949 is kind of forms that are reporting how much you actually made or lost throughout the year buying and selling the cryptocurrency. Uh, but it generally, it's, it's, it's kind of a lot of work, and we've kind of been sidelined by it. Sometimes people have a lot of activity between multiple exchanges, and it can kind of get a little, a little squirrely when you're making transfers between entities and the records don't really line up. So there, there's a lot of complexity, and I would recommend if people are doing it to try to stay on one platform to kind of ease the reporting burden. So one platform, that would be just one of these specific exchanges where they buy crypto as opposed to numerous exchanges, right? That way you can keep all the, the documents in that one place and kind of do all your record keeping through that one platform, like maybe Coinbase or something like that. Right, exactly. Okay. The IRS website lists almost 500 different tax forms and schedules. So whether you're a retiree, a self-employed gig worker, a farmer, a fisherman, a college student, or a Bitcoin investor, there's a tax form out there for you, and we're learning about many of them today. Tyler, what about folks that just take it upon themselves to file their own taxes, do all the paperwork themselves, go through the software, pick a software of their choice and file on their own? Do you recommend folks doing that? Often cases, yeah. If you have a pretty vanilla tax situation, W-2, 1099, uh, just nothing, nothing too complex, maybe a simple business. Uh, I usually recommend people seek out help when they have kind of depreciable property inside of their business or rental property or something like that. That's kind of where we find them. We're, we're most people who have maybe historically prepared their own return and, you know, their ch situation changes. They open up their own business, they start hiring employees or they're buying large capital assets. That's kind of where I feel like it's worth reaching out to for some professional help. But most of the time, I'd say I'd say you could go ahead and prepare it on your own without much sweat. The mo the modern kind of do-it-yourself software is pretty pretty intuitive, and it kind of guides you through a lot of common situations. For somebody that does take it upon themselves to do their own taxes, um, what are some of the the types of mistakes that that they might encounter? Just little things they need to be aware of to make sure they they get their taxes filed correctly. Uh, the most common one I'd see with Self-employed folks is is maybe uh, they'll, they'll enter their business income into the software. It says, "Hey, do you have a business?" And they enter all their income and all their expenses. And then, but then the software might ask them that if, if it, did you receive any 1099 miscellaneous? When they say yes, and they'll enter some of that same income that was reported earlier on the the business they already included. So in in some respect, they're kind of including the same income twice. And I'd say the most important thing is just 
to look at the actual form that you're filing before you press send and make sure it kind of lines up with your understanding of what's going on. It's kind of easy to click through all the forms and look at your big refund number on the side and not really not really actually look at the tax form you're filing, but I would encourage everyone to just look at the actual 1040 that you they, before you hit send, just kind of go line by line and, and know, know where each number is coming from. It should be relatively intuitive if you have a kind of straightforward return where, you know, there's a description of where the, the number is coming from and you can kind of, at least you have a general understanding of you got the right number there. So it sounds like take your time, um, just don't rush it, double check, maybe even triple check if necessary, whatever you got to do to file that accurate return. Because if you don't and there's a problem later on, unfortunately, it can sure come back to haunt you. Folks, again, we're talking income taxes today, tax filing deadline coming up pretty soon next month. So if you got any questions, give us a call. 1-800-996-2848. Back right after this short break. Support by Amerind, Indian Country's 100% tribally owned insurance partner. Amerind works with tribal governments and their business enterprises to provide effective commercial insurance coverage, strengthen Native American communities, protect tribal sovereignty, and help keep dollars in Indian Country. More information on property, liability, workers' compensation, and commercial auto solutions at Amerind.com. That's A M E R I N D.com. This is Native America Calling. I'm Sean Spruce. We're talking about taxes and filing IRS forms today. Do you file early most years? Or are you one of the 25% of Americans who the IRS says wait until the last two weeks before the deadline? Don't procrastinate when it comes to getting in on this discussion. The number to call 1-800-996-2848. That's also 1-800-99-NATIVE. I'd like to go back to Henry Thompson. And Henry, you manage a volunteer income tax assistance site there in Lame Deer, Montana. How can other Native folks uh, find a VITAS site in their community? Well, in the state of Montana, we have a state organization that is run, that is a part of a nonprofit uh, organization, but the group is called Tax Help Montana. But I think if you just Google uh, free VITA, and I think you can also find them on the IRS uh, website. They have a, a section that tells you where every place is. So when we have people call us maybe from Billings, you know, they're welcome to come down here and do their taxes. But I can look on my sheet and say, oh, but HRDC offers a clinic on Wednesdays, and they're open from 10 to 4. So there is, so maybe, um, I mean, there's several ways to get it. Mm -hmm. Okay, great. What about somebody who's listening today and maybe would be interested in being a VITA volunteer and actually helping other folks file their taxes? What goes into becoming a VITA volunteer, Henry? Certification. Every year we have uh, training, and anybody, we used to advertise for volunteers, um, but usually we've been fortunate that we've had the same ones that come back every year to, to help us. We might have a uh, BIA worker during the daytime that has to get special permission to be able to come and do an evening clinic or evening hours and prepare taxes. So 
depending on their job, sometimes you have to have permission from your boss or organization to be able to volunteer to do taxes at a free site. Okay. Normally and what they start out, what we ask them to do is they, we ask them to start out as a greeter. They're the, they take certification on confidentiality, um, and they would just be the person that would greet them at the door or at the window, make sure that they have all the documentation with the checklist, you know, give them the intake form, get copies of their photo IDs, their security cards, uh, go over the documents that they need, the W-2s, 1099 miscellaneous, or if they're a small business, the NEC that they might have, um, tribal IDs, a lot of folks don't have their social security card, but we will accept the tribal ID if their social security card is on there. And then the letters, you know, we have developed a checklist that when they do come in, the greeter goes over that with them. And so we encourage them to be a greeter unless they've prepared taxes before. And then they get certified as basic the first year that they do taxes at our site. And they're just doing, like he called, I like that one, vanilla one, where they're just very basic. And it won't, doesn't take much to get them done. And then the rest of us that have been here for a while get certified at advanced okay. level so, come so that in. we can do the business income. Okay. Start out as a greeter, work your way up, and as you gain more experience, you're, you're working on more complicated tax returns and information. Well, folks, we have a caller on the line. His name is Martin. He's listening on KUNM in Albuquerque, New Mexico. Martin, you're on Native America Calling. Hey, good afternoon. Uh, thanks for your show. It's helpful. Uh, you bet, Martin. What's on your mind? Okay, uh, this has to do with my 2019 taxes. I have sold my personal home, and I'm going to try to make this as uncomplicated as I can. But anyway, I sold the home, and I understood that I was exempt from capital gains, being that I'm single as long as I owned the house for five years and lived in it for, uh, I think it was 24 months. And uh, I would be exempt up to $250,000 of capital gains. Well, I always do my taxes on my own, so I filled out the paperwork. I contacted the IRS and told them to send me every form I needed to do that. I told them what my situation was. They sent me the forms. I sent it in, and then they sent me a tax bill. So I was, like, kind of lost with it. So I took it to H&R Block, and they said, well, you didn't file the most important document. So they redone my taxes and sent it in. And, I mean, it's been over a year and a half, and I still haven't heard anything from them. Is, uh, is that normal? Okay, Martin, thanks for that question. So you sold a house in 2019. Um, a certain amount is exempt from capital gains. When you sell a house up to $250,000, you contacted IRS for forms. They sent them to you. You sent them back. But... H&R Block said something was missing. So let's bring Tyler in. Tyler, any any um, advice you can offer to to Martin here? It looks like he's got a really long delay he's waiting on for some resolution with this home sale back in 2019. Yeah, I apologize for your experience there. That is unfortunate. You do you do have the your understanding correct. You should not face any tax burden with that sale. Um, oftentimes, you, you, sometimes the, the, the broker will report the sale. They'll send you a 1099-S, and sometimes that's where the hiccup is. If the IRS has has a sale number of how, the gross proceeds that you received, but they don't know 
that you lived in the home or you don't you kind of have to almost report the sale and tell them that hey I qualify for this exclusion which I'm guessing that's what H&R did on your uh, your amended return as far as the wait time I'm not terribly surprised um, we have been seeing these really long wait periods what something you could do uh, if you google IRS transcript there's actually kind of a self-service portal you might say that you can you can kind of, it's kind of a pain to get signed up for it but you can sign up for this service that the IRS it's it's direct through the IRS and you essentially can you can go in there and you can kind of see at least if they've received uh, your 2019 tax return and see if they have some record of it it could just be stuck in the mailroom it's very possible uh, it's everything has been taking a really long time. I wouldn't really surprise me if, if they haven't got to it yet. Well, thank, thank you, Tyler. And Henry, I want to ask you, this sounds like it could be a situation where a taxpayer advocate could be of help to Martin. What are your thoughts on that, Henry? You know, I, it would be worth the call. They would tell him right away if that he's not eligible for their services. I don't recall there being an income limit on that, or like Vita. That's that's out of our scope, but they may they may be able to help him. I would say give him a call. Okay. Well, Benjamin Franklin once said that in this world, nothing is certain but death and taxes. However, you might be interested to know that the income tax system we have today in the U.S. was not implemented until 1913. Interestingly, the only people who were subject to filing a return in those days were folks with a net income of $3,000 or more. And $3,000 was a lot more money in those days, which meant that only about 3% of the population was actually required to file a tax return. Well, folks, if you've got a question for today's show, there is still time to give us a call. We've got some serious tax heavyweights who can answer your questions. 1-800-996-2848. That's the number to call, so please don't hesitate. Henry, with regard to the pandemic, uh, it looks like hopefully we're kind of uh, getting over the worst of it at this point. You know, it seems like things are really starting to improve. But uh, any other issues with regard to the pandemic and taxes that folks need to think about for this year's filing? No, I think I've said it and uh, Tyler has said it, the importance of having all of your paperwork in order and put away and, you know, Tribes in the South that have gaming, they issue 1099 miscellaneous for casino monies, uh, revenue. And those are the ones that always come in late for us. So, uh, again, I always, we make sure that we ask all of those questions. Are you, a tr you know, are you affiliated with the tribe that receives per capita payments that come from gaming? And, and yeah, if that's true, then we ask them to wait until all of their documents are ordered. And that's why developing the checklist is really good, that we can give them this little piece of paper that says, as you're putting your papers in order, you know, mark off once you get them in the envelope. Well, Henry, what happens if you don't receive uh, a 1099 for income such as per capita distribution, like you mentioned, or even a W-2 from wages paid by an employer? What should people do if they don't receive those documents? Well, they can amend their return 
and we do have those that are so eager to get their taxes filed that, oh, they come back two or three weeks later and say, oh, I got this in the mail. And the other ones that are always later, the interest ones, you know, we have cooperatives like with telephone and electricity, and you're considered a member of that, so you'll get an interest statement from them, and those will bring, they'll bring those in late too. We just go in there. We don't amend until April. We wait till the rush is through into March or April, and we'll say come back and we'll, re, we'll amend the return. Okay. Tyler, you know, we got a lot of gig workers, self-employed folks in, in many of our native communities. And I know one of the advantages of being self-employed is that you can claim a home office expense if you work out of the home. What are some things folks need to know in order to claim that home office expense? Uh, generally, it needs to be your regular place of business, uh, and regular and exclusive, I might say. It's generally you like to have a separate space that you can kind of point at and say, hey, this is my home office. It's not the kids' playroom. This is my desk. This is my computer. This is where I'm doing my paperwork, my bookkeeping. Generally, it can't be a shared space, so you can't have your home office as your kitchen, you know. Um, but uh, that that that's that's about it. Uh, you, you, and then uh, obviously you can take kind of a a pro rata uh, apportionment of all your home expenses. Sometimes that kind of adds a lot of burden as far as record keeping, having to keep track of all your electricity bills, your other utilities, property tax, everything, insurance. Um, or you can take just a five dollar per square foot. A lot of people just elect to do that. Uh, it's a little bit easier for record keeping. Um, so it's your, your, your choice, depending on how big the home office is, um, kind of decide which one might be more advantageous. So you mentioned though, it has to be this, uh, designated exclusive space. So just because you have a, a computer on the kitchen table and you, you do some work there at the kitchen table, that doesn't count. It's gotta be this separate, completely separate space in the home. And it sounds like, uh, the larger that space, uh, the more advantageous it would be to you to to claim that that deduction is that right like a larger home office space as opposed to a smaller one indeed right so if your home was say a thousand square feet and your home office was 250 square feet then generally you're going to write off 25 percent of the square footage or 25 percent of any home expenses are going to kind of get wrapped into that home office deduction uh, you're not going to be able to create any sort of business loss or anything with the home office, but it is going to help you offset any sort of business income you might be generating. But yeah, generally, generally the bigger the bigger the home office, the better as far as from a deduction standpoint. And it doesn't it doesn't necessarily have to be a separate room per se, but it kind of it kind of needs to be maybe you know a desk in a corner that that you kind of draw draw a line around, or it, it needs to be a separate space that you can kind of point at and say, this is the only thing I use this space for. It does not technically have to be a separate room. Obviously, that helps, though, as far as substantiation. Now, Tyler, another issue that a lot of folks have is is choosing whether or not to take the standardized deduction or itemized deduction. And I know uh, a few years ago, they really increased the amount of the standardized deduction quite a bit, which made it um, a better option for a lot of taxpayers, but could you just give us a, be a brief uh, description, just kind of compare and contrast the difference between taking that standardized deduction versus the itemized deduction? 
Yeah. <clears throat> so generally that we regard that as a, a personal deduction. So for your personal deduction, you either get to choose the standard deduction. Right now I think for a single person it's twelve thousand five fifty, married couple double that, you know, about twenty five thousand or a little more than that. Uh so it's quite a it's quite a big number. Alternate to that, you can choose to what we call itemize your personal deductions, and these items are kind of common com common things that the the federal government and all their wisdom has deemed are helpful to society, so on and so forth. Or anywho, but it, mostly they consist of mortgage interests, uh, pr property taxes, sales tax, and state income tax, medical expenses. So generally, you have to spend. Say if you're a single person, you have to spend more than that $12,550 on these items in particular to kind of exceed that. What we're finding now, a lot of folks are married and that's 25. It's a pretty big number to spend on mortgage interest, property tax, state income tax, so on. Uh, we're, we're finding about 90% of people are claiming the standard deduction. About 10% are itemizing. It's, it's just such a big number now that it's kind of it's hard to come over it unless you got a, a big giant house and a big giant mortgage and paying a lot of property tax. Henry, is that about what you're seeing in the in the population that you serve? About ninety percent of folks taking this standardized deduction uh, versus the ten percent who itemize. I would say that's even more like ninety five percent or ninety six take the the standard okay. deduction as opposed to the mortgage. Now we also encourage some states if they have to pay a state tax. You can itemize on there, and there are some, or you may get um, some money back on some things, like more on the property tax or even the licensing of vehicles, or if you okay. have to have certain type of clothing for employment. Then we encourage them to do that on the state tax if they're paying or if they're filing state tax. Okay. Well, that's good news for a lot of folks because that standardized deduction is a simpler tax return to file. And unfortunately, that's all the time we have for our show. So I want to thank my guests, Henry Thompson, Tyler Emerson, and Sean Guthrie for guiding us through the complexities when filing income taxes. And remember, filing deadline this year is Monday, April 18th. We're back again tomorrow with another live show, and we're talking about the widespread Native tradition of women's headscarves. There's even a connection between Native scarves and those that are worn by women in Ukraine. I'm Sean Spruce. Thank you for listening. with a disability and feel you have not been able to access services for you or a loved one? The Native American Disability Law Center can help. The Native American Disability Law Center is a not-for-profit 501c3, and there is no charge for this help. More info at 800-862-7271 or nativedisabilitylaw.org. Who support this show?
Looking to get your high school diploma? Southwestern Indian Polytechnic Institute offers Native Americans ages 18 or older training and preparation courses for the high school equivalency diplomas. In person and online beginning May 4th. All attendance and testing fees for this program are waived and resources will be available to help with supplies and living expenses. Space is limited. Application deadline is April 8th. More by calling 505-382-4287 or at sipi.edu who support this show. Native America Calling is produced in the Annenberg National Native Voice Studios in Albuquerque, New Mexico by Kwanak Broadcast Corporation, a native nonprofit media organization. Funding is provided by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting with support from the Public Radio Satellite Service. Music is by Brent Michael Davids. Native Voice One, the Native American Radio Network.